Coleman National Monument in Chicago, Illinois, with your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes. We welcome you to Live from the Pullman National Monument, our global cast magazine format talk radio show, where we discuss all things cultural economic development, i.e. tourism, and we hold informative conversations on the arts, music, business, and people. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, founder of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, a National Park Service site in Chicago, Illinois. Good day to you, my listening audience, and we thank you for joining us. Stay with us. Today's show is partially underwritten by Choose Chicago, the premier tourism marketing agency in Chicago, Illinois. Visit the PullmanBorderMuseum.com where you can purchase an annual membership at the level of your choice. And of course, visit our website here to find out more about the show live from the Pullman National Monument at bbsradio.com forward slash live from PNM to contact us. In the tradition of this program, live from the Pullman National Monument, We've established coming on explaining to you, the listening audience, about the Pullman National Monument. Because the Pullman National Monument is so new, there's still lots of questions about it. What is it? Where is it? What are the boundary lines? And what does it actually mean? Since it is the first national park in the city of Chicago. Well, the Pullman National Monument is different from most national monuments, in that it is not just a single building. The Pullman National Monument is a thematic district. The themes for the National Pullman National Monument are labor and architectural history. Um, the, the town is famous for its Queen Anne 18th century, 19th century uh, architecture, the town was built by George Pullman, who was the owner, creator, founder of the Pullman Rail Car Company. Mr. Pullman built the town for the people who worked for him, well, most of the people who worked for him. He built the town to provide housing for the people who worked in the factory. They were carpenters, cabinet makers, machinists, that kind of thing, and he wanted to build housing for them because he wanted to ensure that they had a place to live that was close to his factory in that he was a very astute businessman, and so providing housing for his employees that was steps from his factory meant that he could always count on his employees being at work and on time. But Mr. Pullman had two categories of employees. He had those uh, employees that I just named for you, and he also had African-American railroad employees who were the onboard crew for the Pullman Rail Car Company. They 
did not live in the Pullman Company because they were African Americans and because of the racial climate and conditions of that time. They could not live in Pullman. So the people who worked as the onboard crew for the Pullman Company lived in a community in the city of Chicago known as Bronzeville. So the connection for African Americans to the Pullman National Monument is that they worked for the company that was located in the Pullman National Monument. But the recognition for the people who were working for the Pullman Company as the onboard crew, most specifically the ones that the claim to fame are the ones that brought the most distinction and those who uh, created history with the Pullman Company were the Pullman Porters, who later became known as the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. They were the formulators of the first African-American labor union in the country. They were the first to win a collective bargaining agreement with a major U.S. corporation, which happened to be the Pullman Company. And so that is the significance for labor history for the Pullman community or the Pullman National Monument. Most specifically, it is the black labor history connection for the Pullman National Monument. President Barack Obama designated the Pullman National Monument, the community of Pullman, as a Pullman National Monument in February of 2015. And so we are basically catching up, if you will. There were a number of entities We were already here, already doing what we do, each of us in our own respective niches, before President Obama designated the area. Case in point, there is the Historic Pullman Foundation who operates a house tour, an annual house tour. And they have been doing that, I believe, for 40 years. And it is well-attended, well-established, and quite successful. They are housed at the Pullman Visitor Center that is at 111th and Cottage Grove. Then there is the Pullman Factory, which is most famously referred to as the Pullman Clock Tower. That, that is the building that was the site of the Pullman Factory where they actually made uh, the train cars, and it was the offices of the Pullman Company. They are also uh, at 111th and Cottage Grove. That particular property is now owned by the state of Illinois and has been, I believe, for maybe 10 years. Uh, But that building is not open to the public on a daily basis. You visitors may go to that factory and tour the building by appointment only. The Historic Pullman Foundation, which is at 112th and Cottage Grove, is currently shared with uh, or shared by the National Park Service and the Historic Pullman Foundation. The National Park Service is currently working uh, on building or building out their visitor center, which will become the official visitor center for the Pullman National Monument, and it will be physically located in the Pullman Clock Tower. 
But until they finish, they're currently sharing the space at the Pullman Visitor Center, which is which is at 112th and Cottage Grove. I'm not sure what the name is going to be once they finish because you won't be able to have two visitor centers, but but that is where they are physically operating out of now. Then you have the Hotel Florence. It was the hotel that was uh, in place for people who came to visit Pullman. Uh, it is now under construction, and we are still not clear what that's going to be. Uh, you can visit that as well by appointment only. Then there is the Greenstone Church. The Greenstone Church has a history. Uh, its significance is that is because of the bricks are green limestone that were that was distinctive at the time, and apparently it still is. That's number one. The second thing is because of the organ that is there, which apparently has um, major significance. And then, of course, there's the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, of which I happen to have the honor of being the founder. It is a 22-year-old African-American labor history museum. And while it is small in size, the, the historic significance uh, has national acclaim in that it is the first African-American labor history in the U.S. It is the only one of its kind worldwide, and it has been in operation for two years, and the museum is open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 11 to 4, and the admission is $5. I make a point of saying that because all of the buildings that I named in this discussion are owned by the state or the federal government, and so they do not charge uh, an admission because they don't have to. We're not in that capacity yet. We do not have a written agreement with the federal government that would allow us to have a free admission, but we're working on it. We have one new restaurant. It's called the Pullman Cafe. It is at 113th and Champlain. So I hope that that is, uh, provides you, the listening audience, with the kind of information that you need uh, for your visiting of the Pullman National Monument. Each of the entities that I make reference to has their own individual websites, and you can follow them, but of course... You can visit the A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, uh, and the information that I have provided for you is displayed there on each entity under Pullman National Monument. So I hope that that provides you with information that you need that will help better help you understand what about what's going on with the Pullman National Monument. We are going to take a quick break. And come right back with our first guest. Port Hughes Peterson Publishing by visiting the PullmanMessenger.com and purchase an annual subscription. It's just $12 a year. Or purchase an anthology of respect by Dr. Lynn Hughes, available on Amazon.com.
Welcome back to Live at the Pullman National Monument. I'm so excited about this show today. I, I have as my very special guest, uh, David Parada, who is author of Those Pullman Blues. He's one of my favorite people in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm very pleased that he's with us today because he's going to be talking about a subject that is, of course, near and dear to my heart. And that is the African-American Railroad attendant and the tremendous legacy and lessons that they have left for us. And not just for African-American people, but for all people. And so, David Parada, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So so one of the things that I want to do is I want you – I'm, I'm not going to talk a lot. I'm going to just let you tell people about the book, why you may be – what made you write the book, and share some of your experiences. And, and I'm going to say at the outset that it's no way humanly possible for us to extract the very important information uh, that you have in your possession in the book, on the printed page, and in your heart that you can share with the listening audience. So I want to say that this is probably going to end up being a series. And so, so so you may be with us for a while, if that's okay with you. I'd like to invite you maybe about two or three times for the next two or three weeks. That's if you can me. find the time to come on with us, I'd love to have you. As long as you don't get sick of me, that's fine. <laughs> and, and before I forget, uh, I want you to be sure to tell people uh, where – where they can get the book and the, all of that good stuff. How about that? That's fine. Now or later? Um, so you can tell them later, but I just want to make sure that you do that. Okay. I'll get that in there, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so why don't you start with, tell us what made you write the book? Well, when I was a kid, and this would be about 1960, 61, my folks would um, – take me on the train from time to time. This was in the San Francisco Bay Area, so this would be the Southern Pacific Railroad. And I noticed these fellows on the train, and they kind of, there was a difference about them aside from their color. They were uh, they were very nice to me, and I just picked up this kind of a vibe. And, you know, some people have said when I was writing the book, um, those cars were just cold pieces of steel without the uh, the black men who worked them. And I would agree, because whatever I picked up, I guess, you know, in the 60s, we started to call that soul. Whatever soul is, I think it's true, they possessed it. It was, they had Filipinos work the trains for a while, they had white people at times, and it just wasn't the same. So whatever the black man gave to those trains, he gave them a soul, he gave them life. So... Even as a kid, I picked up on that. And then years later, um, when I started working for Amtrak as a porter, this would have been 1980, a lot of these old guys were were just running out their final miles. And um, they'd sit around in the dining car and they'd say, Amtrak ain't nothing. You know, the old days, uh, you should have been there on the Super Chief or the Lark. And they just had this pride. You know, you could see it on their faces. You could hear it in their voices. And I was like a fly on the wall. I was just absorbing all this, and I thought, gee, somebody better get this down before all these guys die out. So I just set about to do it. And um, 
started with one person, and then he led me to another, and I just kind of jumped around, did a lot of interviewing, and um, 12 years later, the book got published. That's that's very interesting. What well, the the um, the important piece is that you just shared is that for decades, the African Americans who worked on the railroad as uh, on the onboard crew were all African American, right? And then you come along, or your peer group came along to sort of pick up the slack, if you will, where because they were all older and retiring and you were filling the void that was going to be left by this uh, significant group of uh, railroad employees. And I think that's interesting to note that um, how you even perceived it, that it was just something different about them. Um, but I'm going to be quiet and let you continue. <laughs> Well, you know, when I came on there, an 80 Amtrak broke the color barrier and the, the sex barrier. They had men and women, um, a lot of white people, all different kinds of uh, people working on the trains. And, you know, you could tell. I mean, it just kind of deteriorated into this generic kind of thing. And, of course, the trains, uh, all the old equipment was being retired. And you know, Amtrak today is a far, far cry from, from what it was back at that time and well you got to figure emancipation was 1863 Pullman built his pioneer sleeping car his first car in 1865 and he needed someone to staff that car so the most logical choice would be the recently freed slaves and then you think of it so by the time that 1926 rolled around which was peak year for the Pullman company it had only been about 63 years since emancipation. And why, it, it, it's been over 50 years since the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan, and I lived through that. So 1863 to 1960, 1926 was just a hop, skip, and a jump from the plantation. And um, that's basically what it was. They, they took the plantation system with the white overseer and the slaves, and they put it on the trains, and all the conductors were white. Lounge car uh, man was white. All the Pullman employees in the offices were white, but all of the porters and the bus boys and the dining car waiters, they were all black. And it was the same kind of a deal with um, with how they treated them. You know, some of the uh, some of the conductors and they were decent men, but a lot of them were. Uh, you know, still had that old kind of plantation mentality. And it's interesting that it was culturally significant because at one time only wealthy people could have black servants. And now um, anybody who bought a, a train ticket could be served by a black man and uh, you didn't have to be wealthy. It all trickled down. And this went out into societies in the cities and towns, and that plantation hospitality appealed to the white clientele. And that's what installed this master-servant relationship uh, in our culture, and it stuck. You know, that's why it's taken so long to break this stereotype, because it was ingrained into our culture. And um, my theory is um, 
you know, if you could transport a young black man today back to 1926, he couldn't go around acting like he does today. He'd be placed in an entirely different environment. He'd have a tough time finding a job. He'd find himself unable to speak to a white person as he would today. His very demeanor would make him suspect. The fastest way to make some money legally would be to go down to the closest Pullman company yards and hire on a supporter or a busboy. And if they liked the looks of you, you'd be making money in a matter of days. But he would have a really tough time putting up with the many white passengers. But he'd have to learn quickly that to appeal to their vanity meant more and bigger tips. And Malcolm X, um, for those of you who know who Malcolm X is, he worked for a brief time on the Yankee Clipper train between Boston and New York as a dishwasher and a sandwich man selling food in the coaches. And in his book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, he stated, We were in the world of Negroes who are both servants and psychologists, aware that white people are so obsessed with their own importance that they will pay liberally, even dearly, for the impression of being catered to and entertained. So that kind of tells the whole thing, but it was survival. You know, it was working the system. You had a family to feed. Anybody placed in that type of environment would have to work it the way the porters did. And James Steele said in the book, he was a porter, he said, when I first started, you had to be careful. It was no joke. Listen, if the white man could kick your butt, he did. But if you showed him you could kick his butt back, he wouldn't bother you. I tell you how I dealt with it, by ignoring it. As long as you don't put your hands on me, I won't bother you. So... And that was kind of the conditions out there. And, um, you know, I worked as a waiter in various restaurants in my life, and I smiled and gave good service and worked hard for those tips because it was in my best interest to do so. And millions of white kids and people have done that very same thing. So why should anybody put down a porter or, or call them Uncle Tom's or Yasser's or any of that because they were just doing what they had to do to survive in that time and, you know, it's true. In one way or another, we all have to serve somebody anyway. So I don't think that um, they should be put down for that. And I kind of think, in a way, they have been. Uh, I remember I was uh, signing books somewhere in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and the young black man came up, and he looked at the book, and he kind of screwed up his face like it was uh, Satan looking at him. And it, it kind of hit me at that time. He was looking at this, and he he was kind of uh, repelled by it, because I, I think that a lot of young black people today think that was an embarrassment, but they don't know the truth. They don't know that that was uh, basically one of the first, or the beginning of the civil rights movement, and their fight against the Pullman Company, 12 years, you can imagine, like what I said, it was only 60 years removed from uh, from the plantation, and here they were trying to form a union, and they couldn't do it on their own. Philip Randolph came in there in 1925 with about uh, 500 porters in New York City. Randolph gave a, a speech in October. He started barnstorming. Uh, every porter he could get in pool halls and everywhere he could go. And then they started to spread rumors that he was a communist and he wanted to make more money. And um, even churches, press leaders, uh, union leaders, um, other union leaders, 
they were against him, saying, um, you know, stay away from him. He's bad news. We're going to lose our monopoly on this thing. And Pullman porters were beaten and threatened and intimidated uh, in an effort to smash this, uh, this union. Men were dismissed, secret union meetings and stool pigeons and all of that. Filipinos were hired for a while, and they told the, the porters, we're going to hire Filipinos, and we're going to fire all you people if you keep on with this union. But anyway, for 12 years, Randolph and the porters fought. And then finally, in April of 1937, Pullman was forced to sit down at the bargaining table, and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Union was became a reality. So that's that's an incredible thing. You look back in black history, and there, I don't see how there's any way you can just remove that from black history and and find a way to jump from the plantation over to modern days without any uh, any realization of how it happened. You know, I, I just, I can't see how, you know, in a black history class, how, how you could eliminate all of this. I think that they mentioned the porters in passing, you know, but it's such a big part of the history, both the country and black history. Um, I think it's been overlooked. You know, I, I really think it has. Well, you know, what's important to me, it was important to me to have you on the show today because of all that you just stated and and is why I wanted to 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 have you on because as you know, I founded the A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum in 19 19- 95. And the reason that I founded the museum, because I stumbled literally upon that history. And I thought it was so important, so significant that there ought to be a place that honored that history for the very reasons that you outlined in your statement. And so for 21 years, I have done just that. And, and, and there have been all manner of people who have come through over the years because of the significant body of research that I have uh, done that is not recognized in the academic community because I'm, I'm not an academician, but I do hold a PhD. I made a choice to operate the museum to honor that segment of history because I, I do believe, as you just stated, it is important not just to black history. It's, in, it's important to, to civil rights and it's important to labor history in general. And so now that the Pullman National Monument has been established, there's all manner of people who are suddenly experts on the subject. And it is commercialized. I won't say the other word, but it's it's commercialized in a way that I find distasteful. And I don't know anyone out there who knows more about this history than you And on the research side and on the academic side, even though I'm not a a professor at a university, I am an academic and I have a a doctorate degree to state that. And the, the research that I have done, no one has. No one has. And there's been people who have come to the museum to ask if they could use the research that I have. And because I didn't acquiesce to the terms of how they wanted to use it, so they go off and spin off and do a book and you know with the sound bites 
but no one out there has done a book in depth and 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 addresses that component of history from the human human side the humanity of those men who they were and what they represented because they didn't always stay in the slave mentality many of them were educated as you well know but chose that profession because it paid very well and as most people are beginning to learn they were the foundation for the black middle class and we owe them Big time. We owe them. And this sub- subject is so um, expansive that we want to formally ask you if you will come back for our next show to continue this subject matter. I'd like to delve into it a bit more. I'd be happy to. So so David Parada's book is Those Pullman Blues, and you want to share with the listening audience how they can find the website or uh, where they can find the book so that they can become enthusiastic about okay. it as I am. This is a new edition that I put out uh, in 2014, and it's only available on my website right now, and that website is www.thosepullmanblues.com, and you can download it or you can buy a, a hard copy. And they have a, I have a free chapter on there that you can download so you can get some sort of an idea about what this book's all about and a lot of photographs, and uh, I hope you come and visit. Well, David Parada, thank you so very much. We're honored Thanks. to have had you, and we look forward to uh, your next visit. And the, for the listening audience, we will put the... Uh, web address up on our show page so that you can find uh, the book. So visit uh, live from the Pullman National Monument on BBS Radio and you'll find our show page and there we will have all of the information that will assist you in finding David Parada's book. You gotta buy it. You gotta buy it. And so thank you, thank you, thank you David and we're going to take a short break and be back Our guest today is Mr. Samuel W. Black. He is the director of African-American programs at the Senator John Hines History Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Lauren Davidson, writer for the Pittsburgh Magazine, wrote about him that Mr. Black, who is one of the most noted contemporary scholars of African-American culture is changing the way people look at black history through his work. And we are honored to have him as our special guest today on this segment of Around the Museum Table. Mr. Black, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. We're, 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 we're very pleased. We're very pleased. I'm in awe of your work. And um, maybe I don't know about the people in the listening audience, how many of them, probably many of them know more about your work than I do. 
but I am in awe of your work and very, very proud to be able to have you here today. So let's start by your telling us a little bit about the Heinz History Center and your work there. Oh, sure. The um, Senator John Heinz History Center is the oldest cultural institution in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It uh, was founded um, uh, in 1879, and um, it, it consists primarily of the Historical Society of Western Pennsylvania, the Western Pennsylvania Sports Museum, the uh, Fort Pitt Museum in downtown Pittsburgh, as well as the Museum Conservation Center and the Meadowcroft Historic Village of Rock Shelter. Uh, so it's a, a um, uh, organization that, uh, similar to a mini Smithsonian, where you have a number of different museums all under one roof, um, uh, corp, uh, um, under one roof in a sense. Um, and my role there is that I overlook all of the African American programs, African American collections, both museum and archival. Um, as well as I curate exhibits and I write and publish on different aspects of the African-American experience. My goodness, you're a very busy person. Oh, yes. <laughs> you're very That's very impressive. You have a very impressive body of work before you. And I haven't been there, but I'm going to make my way there to come visit uh, the oh, center so, so that I can see firsthand. Um. I, I want to, to, you are a very unique guest for us today because you wear a number of hats, but, but I would first like for you to talk a little bit about or give your perception about what museums mean to the tourism arena and what role museums play in the tourism arena. Okay. Uh I think that really depends on uh, where the museums are located. Um, uh, for instance, a museum in Miami, Florida, or Washington, D.C., or New York City, or Philadelphia, uh, cities that attract, and Chicago, cities that attract large tourist numbers, and tourism is a major part of their um, the industry and the economic um, um, uh, health of that particular region. Uh, for us in Pittsburgh, although we do get quite a few tourists, uh, we're not known as a as a big tourist, you know, mecca, in a sense, where tourism is not um, a major part of our uh, economy in Pittsburgh. So it's just a little different thing. We do count that when we're considering our projects and and how effective our museum should be. Um, we kind of rely more on a domestic uh, visitorship, and, um, but for museums in general, those that are in regions where tourism is a major part of the economy, uh, museums play a major role. Um, and although the cities that I mentioned all just happen to have world-class museums, and one of the reasons why is that um, they want to attract the tourist trade. and. Um, museums also play a role in the sense of bringing um, dollars uh, to the region because it also brings people who like museums or it brings organizations to hold their annual meetings in their cities. Um, I'm glad we went 
took that path on answering um, the question because what I really would like to do, and I didn't tell our listening audience that this when I introduced you, but you are, I guess it's safe to say that you're president emeritus of the Association. Uh, immediate of, past president. Immediate past president of the Association of African American Museums. That then, in my opinion, enables you to wear two hats. And so you have a unique perspective in looking at what, how museums interface with tourism or, or, or are a part of, of uh, the tourism industry mm-hmm. and how, how, and you made a very good point about how the, you know, small museums, how they play a role because uh, as you know, we're the national A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. I'm, I'm the founder of that and we are a small museum, but, but I find that, we play a major role in the tourism uh, traffic in the city of Chicago. So I'd like for you to be able to make a few comments or to discuss that, if you will. Oh, certainly. Um, uh, Some of the museums that I am um, uh, more familiar with in terms of their impact on the tourism uh, would be some of the museums like in Boston, the African American Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, they operate two uh, campuses, one in Beacon Hill, uh, which is, of course, a historic district in Boston, uh, and the other one on Nantucket Island. And both of those you know, areas are very heavy in terms of tourism uh, to the city of Boston. So the museums play a major role. Um, The Boston campus is um, uh, partnering with the, or has a partnership with the National Park Service. They conduct tours of the facility and that uh, Beacon Hill area. Uh, It's called an African American Heritage Trail of Boston. Um, And the buildings that are the historic properties that make up the museum, the African Meeting House, and the ABL Smith School um, are historic properties and important to African American history. They are two of the oldest uh, such buildings in the country that were built by African Americans and maintained by African Americans. The campus in Nantucket on Nantucket Island is the same thing. Uh, you have a historic home that was built by an African American ex-slave, uh, Seneca Boston, in 1774. Uh, so those are two tourist track attractions, and um, um, uh, you know, so it, it's a very much a part of both Nantucket Island uh, tourism and the uh, Boston tourism in the sense that they draw people there. And what we are, we in a sense of those of us in African American museums have been arguing for a very long time, is that uh, local. Um, tourism boards or convention bureaus or uh, visit centers, as they call them today, um, are more and more starting to take a second look at African-American museums and include them a great deal more in their advertising um, for tourism and visitation to their cities. Um, Because especially in Chicago, not only a Philip Randolph Museum, but you have the DuSable Museum of African-American History. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
that are very well known uh, nationally. You have the Harold Washington Library, um, the um, uh, Vivian Harsh Collection at the Public Library there um, are all very well known and, you know, not only attract visitors uh, to those museums and libraries, but also researchers. And so, um, you know, what I've noticed with African American museums is that they've been able to not only capitalize on the uh, local um, visitor and visitation, but also reach out to those who are venturing into the city for whatever reason, whether it's vacation or for business or whatever. Um, I'll give you a quick story. It's a personal story, but I had a traveling exhibit a few years ago called Soul Soldiers, African Americans in the Vietnam Era. And it was at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, which is the Lorraine Hotel where Dr. King was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a cousin who uh, knew very little about my project. He knew I was doing a project on the Vietnam War. But he lives in North Carolina, and he was traveling in Memphis on business. And as he told me that whenever he had a couple of hours of free time doing his business trips, he always liked to go visit museums. So, of course, he's going to go to the the, um, National Civil Rights Museum, and he walks in. And he goes to this exhibit on the Vietnam War, and there's a picture of my brother, who was a Vietnam veteran, on the wall. And so my cousin was really, he be, really became emotional because my brother passed away in 1971. And so um, the people at the museum didn't believe him when he kept saying that was his cousin until he started shedding tears. And then they mm-hmm. believed that he, you know, he was probably telling the truth. So that was a story that both he told me about as well as the museum people told me about. Uh, but here you have someone who is visiting uh, a, another city on business and ventures into what? An African-American museum. And had no idea that there was something personal and family-related in that museum. But um, it's the fact that uh, people are choosing to go to African-American museums uh, for whether it's for leisure or business or, you know, social or whatever the occasion may be. You know, um, that's a very uh, interesting story, and I'm glad that you share that with us. But, but you know, it brings about a very good point. Museums, I think people have this notion about museums that they're sort of just stagnant places to to sort of go. And I think what we 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 in the museum community have to do is to find a better way to let people know who we are and what we really do because we 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 are teachers uh we are cultural institutions so so it's a two in one and and it's a repository for 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 reflection uh on on many things that have to do with our culture in the last year, I will share with you that since the designation of the Pullman National Monument, we have had a solid year of an influx of international visitorship. And these are people who come and they specifically want to know about civil rights and black history. And so it is not just, I think that people, there's a misnomer 
or misinformation about what's at a museum and what kinds of things that tourists want to see. I think that those visitors centers and visitor information centers that you spoke about earlier, I think we have to do some work on them, frankly, to let them know who we are and what we do and, and maybe bring to their attention the interest of international tourists because people are coming and they want to know about this history. We have people from Asia. We have people from Europe. You know, all of these different audiences of people who you would never think would be interested, just just, just assuming, ourselves we're assuming, we never thought that people would want to come to America from other places to see and to learn more about civil rights and African-American history. And so I think that so it, it's almost like the time has come for that particular genre, if you will. And and I think it's very important. And I think probably the, the idea that we had an African-American pre- president contributed heavily to that interest. But better late than never, I would think, um, uh, and so I just wanted to share that with you since you shared the story, because I think we're, we're we're sort of saying the same things that people who are traveling and they just sort of come people who just want to visit museums. And just like your relative went into to that uh, National Civil Rights Museum, he had no clue that he was going to to come upon something that touched him in a very personal way. So, so, well, so. There, there is another example that's similar to what you're saying, the River Road African American Museum in Donaldsonville, Louisiana. This is a rural, rural area between New Orleans and Baton Rouge along the Mississippi River. And uh, this museum uh, basically um, chronicles uh, black rural life in Louisiana and near the sugarcane fields and so forth. So a lot of their collection really is uh, evolves around an agrarian uh, sort of society. So it's all farmers. It's a history of black farmers. Uh, it's a history of struggle working in sugarcane fields uh, and so forth. And uh, in 2014 and 2015, a surprising percentage of their visitorship were foreigners. People mm-hmm. from Eastern mm-hmm. Europe and people mm-hmm. from Asia. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. their director, Kathy Hambrick, uh, was trying to, you know, get a hold of it in a sense or understand it better of why and was even, you know, had a survey of their visitors, their foreign visitors, asking what brought them to the River Road African American Museum. And more than than often, you know, the, the answer would be, that they were just interested in black mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that tells you pretty much what you were saying is that there is a foreign audience that is interested in black history. They want to know more about the experiences of African Americans. They want to know more about, you know, what, how does America define democracy and the fact that looking at the experiences of African Americans gives them a better idea of what democracy is or isn't. Yes. <laughs> and this is um, one of the things that is drawing a lot of foreigners 
to African-American museums because, after all, African-American museums tell that story better than anyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this is very interesting, a very interesting. We'll, we're going to have to... We're going to have to have you to come back to to be a, a guest again around the museum table. But 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 I want to to reiterate that this is a part of the show where you get to talk to our listening audience about whatever you want to talk about. Let's say for the sake of this discussion, you want to there's something you want people to know about that's coming up, or you want to promote something that's happening at your center. This is where you have the opportunity to do that, and we'd love for you to just take a few minutes and talk about anything you want to talk about this Oh, sure. I, you know, we're doing so many things. Let me narrow it down. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, one, I guess one is um, um, I am uh, very much into collaboration, and over the past three or so years um, have been doing programs with other organizations around Pittsburgh. And one of those is a long-term program that comes out of an exhibition that we opened in 2012 called From Slavery to Freedom that looks at the African-American experience, of course, the, the background of slavery, but it also looks at a little bit at African civilizations and then focuses a great deal on Pittsburgh in terms of Pittsburgh's abolitionists uh, history and civil rights history, and um, uh, one of the, um, I guess we'll say, uh, sort of new and exciting areas of the exhibit, because a great deal of it was original research by myself, was a section where we call Surviving Off the Land, which basically addresses how runaway slaves were able to sustain themselves in the wilderness on the journey to freedom. And so we looked at um, uh, different, 50 different foods or plants that grew in the area between the Gulf of Mexico and the Pennsylvania border or the Mason-Dixon line and the Mississippi River and the Atlantic Ocean. So we looked at that region of the United States and primarily um, before the Civil War, so we are looking at the antebellum period, and, uh, and then we took a look at the slave narratives that have been written, and we researched the different plants that grew in that particular area and the relationship those plants had with African Americans. And so uh, a great deal of our research uh, chronicles what plants, what flora uh, were used for sustenance, were used to make medicines, were used to make weapons, uh, were used to make clothing, uh, and was used to make um, shelter. And uh, this research we put into a, um, a website, um, and it can be found at the HeinzHistoryCenter.org website. All you have to do is look for From Slavery to Freedom exhibit, uh, and you will find the bulk of that research. But we're continuing to work on it um, because there's a book publication in a couple of years about it. And this is original research where... It's basically a runaway slave story, but it's looking at it from a different point of view. We're putting the reader on the ground with the escaping slaves. So uh, it's a little different in a sense, but our collaboration is with the Pittsburgh Parks Conservancy that has um, op just recently opened as of September 10th a redesigned and renovated environmental center 
that it's a completely um, uh, recycled center. It recycles all of its water. Uh, it uses solar energy to um, uh, provide electricity and energy for the uh, education center. And we also put it from Slavery to Freedom Garden there. Um, and we'll grow plants that are derived out of my research um, so that we can educate the public about this aspect of the freedom movement. So that's something that, that um, uh, we're really anxious on. The plants will be, uh, some of the plants will be planted um, within a couple of weeks now and will bloom in the spring. Uh, and so our programming will really kick off in the spring and the summer and the fall months um, around this whole subject. And it's something that um, we're encouraging a lot of other museums to do. Um, and our partnership with the Frick Environmental Center works out because if anyone's familiar with uh, Pittsburgh, Frick Park is one of the largest uh, urban parks in the country, similar to, I guess, in New York you have Central Park, and then there's MacArthur Park in D.C., and uh, I mean in um, uh, Los Angeles, and in other places you have these big city parks. Uh, and, of course, in Chicago, you're all quite familiar with how effective uh, parks can be, not only as places of leisure, but as education sites as well. And so uh, that's what we're doing here in Pittsburgh, and we're really happy with it, and we we really hope that it turns out very well. Well, it's interesting, uh, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking back to something uh, Ford Bell, who was the former president of the American Alliance of Museums, there's something he said, something he was quoted in, in, in before he retired from there, which says the museums are uh, are charged with coming outside of the walls. We're, we're, we're charged with uh, engaging the community and doing more with less. And so uh, the traditional role of a museum has, has, is evolving and is changing. Mm-hmm. And so we are doing very kind, similar kinds of things that you just mentioned. And so I would love to have a conversation with you off the air to have a further dialogue about some of those. Maybe you can give us some advice. But this has been an absolute fantastic interview with you, very informative. And I thank you so very much for joining us today. Sure. Our guest today from around the museum table, Mr. Black from the Heinz History Center. Everybody, thank you for sharing with us another informative show on the ever-expanding topic of tourism. Thank you to the listening audience for spending part of your Sunday with us. And a very special thank you to the Pullman Messenger Magazine, United Auto Workers Local 551, and Choose Chicago. Thank you to our fantastic engineer, Mr. Don Newsom, smooth jazz artist, Jonathan Fritzen for allowing us to use his music on our show every week. And last but not least, you, the listening audience, because without you, there would be no show.
And we'll see you next time on Live from the Pullman National Monument. Live from Pullman National Monument was brought to you by Hughes-Peterson Publishing in Chicago, Illinois. Hosted by Dr. Lynn Hughes.